Um, has anyone heard of a dude called John G. Patton? He was a missionary to the Hebrides. And he often lived in danger as he worked along the hostile, among the hostile natives who had never heard the gospel. At one time, three witch doctors claiming to have the power to cause death publicly declared their intentions to kill Patton with their sorcery before the next Sunday. To carry out their threat, they said they needed some food that he had partially eaten. So Patton, he asked for three plums. He took a bite out of each plum and gave them to the men who were plotting his death. He's given them the murder weapons. On Sunday, the missionary entered the village with a smile on his face and a spring in his step. And the people looked at other in amazement, thinking it couldn't possibly be Patton. And their sacred men admitted that they had tried by all their incantations to kill him. And when asked why they had failed, they replied that the missionary was a sacred man like themselves, but that his God was stronger than theirs. From then on, Patton's influence grew, and soon he had the joy of leading some of the villagers to the Lord. You see, there are many times when our faith is put to the test. Maybe not in such dramatic fashion as Mr. Patton's, Watch out for those plums. But a test all the same. And sometimes those tests can even come from within and not always from outside. So we might not ever come face to face with a witch doctor trying to kill us, but maybe we might come face to face with some other form of prophet, with someone claiming to be a messenger of God. But how do we know? Well, as we move into John chapter 4, John actually gives us a test to apply to messengers and prophets. He gives us a way to discern their credibility. So if you've got your Bibles open, uh, got your Bibles with you, open them to John chapter 4. And uh, Alison, thank you so much for your ministry of the Word this morning. Wonderfully read. Um, so if we want to just jump into verse 1 again. Um, beloved... We remember, we're looking for this test. Do not believe every spirit, but test, there we go, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to the us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There's our test for us. John's test was this. No, that's not the answer. Um, uh, how can you determine whether the spirit is of God or a spirit is a falsehood? How do you determine what spirit someone possesses? 
John's test is, what does the person believe about Jesus Christ? It's a pretty good test. If a person denies the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he has come in the flesh, which was a heresy that the false teachers were promoting among John's original readers, if they deny Christ's incarnation, then they have the spirit of the Antichrist. Anyone who denies what the apostles taught about Christ evidences a spirit opposed to Jesus Christ. So anyone who denies the Gospels or the teachings of the apostles from the Scriptures about Christ, according to John, that is evidence that they have the spirit of the Antichrist and not Christ at work in them. So notice that John didn't say that we can tell false spirits by their works. He didn't say you can tell a false prophet by their works. He said that you can identify that they are false spirits by their words. Who do they say? What do they say about who Jesus is? Anyone who says something other than what the Gospels and what the Apostles say who Jesus is, is not speaking the truth. And so they cannot be from God. And John didn't say that every spirit that denies Jesus, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus. Often heretical teaching masks its deviations from the truth by simply failing to affirm important biblical truth. So rather than proclaiming that Jesus is not the Christ, some false prophets simply fail to affirm that he is the Christ. For example, Mormons reject that Jesus Christ is God. They agree that he is the Son of God, but not God, and especially not the Trinitarian God that we believe in, that the Scriptures portray. So the practical test we can apply to teachers in the church is to ask, what do they believe about Jesus? Is he who the Bible says he is? Is he who the apostles taught he was? If people believe anything about Jesus that is not contained in the Bible, then they have made their own version of Jesus. And this applies to people who omit parts of the Bible's teaching about Jesus and even those who omit some of the words and some of the actions of Jesus to make Jesus more palatable to their modern views. They also commit idolatry by making their own version of Jesus. And I'm calling it idolatry for a reason, because that is what it is. Anyone who believes something about Jesus that is not from the Scriptures has just made their own God. Do you see how important that is? See, if people say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I disagree with some of the things that he said, or I don't believe some of the things from the Bible about Jesus, they've made their own God. Because their own, they can then make that God palatable to their taste. And so what have they done? They've made God in their image and in their thoughts. And they've made a God that would agree with them, not the God of the Bible. Very important distinction to make. It's a wonderfully practical test to apply to check if anyone is from God or a false prophet. 
John then encourages the Christians who have successfully navigated this area already, those who have tested prophets and remained true to the apostles' teaching, they had overcome their opponents of Jesus by the help of the Holy Spirit within them. He says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That was evidence of their overcoming. The Holy Spirit is stronger than Satan. We overcome Satan, his agents and his influence as we resist his temptations to doubt, deny, disregard and disobey the word of God. See, those are all great temptations we face, is to doubt, deny, disregard and disobey the word of God. Some wonderful temptations right there, isn't there? Because not everything in the scriptures is easy to stomach, right? Particularly with our modern worldviews that are uh, foist upon us. Yet those who are close to the world, those with worldly minds, they will find great appeal in false teaching because they come from the world and share the viewpoint of the world. That's why our transformation upon coming to a saving faith in Christ is so vivid and important. It is that moment that we are made new, made a new creation. And so the renewal of our minds must follow, taking every thought captive to Christ. See, there are plenty of mega churches filled with worldly people, because many religious movements are composed mainly of unsaved people who find false doctrine appealing. If the gospel is not present, and if the truth of the Bible is not preached, and if repentance is never a part of the gospel, but just a bunch of platitudes to make people feel nice, if sin and repentance is never mentioned, then I question if that is a church of the Spirit of God or another spirit as John asks us to test. One commentator said, I do not care whether several thousand people come to your church. That is not the important thing. I am interested in the message. Is the word of God being given out? Is it given out in the power of the Spirit so that the Spirit of God can take it and use it? When Christians hear the truth from the Scriptures, you should be encouraged because listening to the words of God is an encouragement to those who are from God. A Christian should welcome and enjoy sitting under the word of God because that is from God. If you're not from God, then you don't want to listen to what he has to say. That's another test for us too, if you like. Christians desire to hear the word of God. You see, God did not give us the Bible merely to teach us something, but to make us something. So the test John gives us to help us distinguish the spirit of truth from a spirit of error. Teachers of the truth are heard and received by faithful Christians, but are ignored and refused by those who are not of God. So here's a little test for you. Do you welcome the truth or do you ignore it? It might give some insight into where your heart is abiding, in light or darkness. And John leaves behind the test of what is from the Holy Spirit and what is from worldly spirits, and he spirals back onto his most celebrated topic of love. And he goes over and restates a couple of things that we've already covered in previous weeks, where he says that, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's where you've heard it before. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, love as well as faith is a product of God's spirit. Believers in intimate fellowship with God love. That's what we do. Verse 7 is considered to be the summary of the entire letter. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. A devout Christian was taken seriously ill. In his weakened physical, in his weakened physical condition, he became vulnerable to Satan's attacks and began to have many doubts and fears. He was especially troubled about the lack of love he felt in his heart for God. And so he asked the advice of a fellow believer who called in and visited. His friend offered this wise counsel. When I go home, I expect to take my baby girl on my knee, look into her sweet, trusting eyes, listen to her delightful chatter, and I'll do this because I thoroughly love that child. She's just an infant, and she loves me very little. If my heart were breaking, her innocent sleep would not be disturbed. If my body were racked with pain, her play would not be interrupted. Even if I were to die, she'd probably forget me in a few days. But all the money in the world could not buy my little daughter. And why? Does she love me, or do I love her? Do I withhold my love until I know she feels the same toward me? Certainly not. I love her because she's my child. The illustration spoke to the sick man's heart. And tears began to well up in his eyes and he said, Now I see, he exclaimed, It's not my love for God, but his love for me that I should be thinking of. Oh man, now do I love him more now than as ever before. Right? God's love for us is truly mind-blowing. And in another test, if you like, John says that love is what passes the test. Are we from God? Love is what passes the test. See, the absence of love shows that a person who does not love does not have intimate fellowship with God. God is light. Those who abide in him walk in his light. God is righteous. Those who abide in him practice righteousness, just as God is love. And those who abide in him manifest his loving character. See, love is not on our terms, it's on his. C.H. Dodd writes, all his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is the expression of what his nature is to love. 
So let's talk about the God is love false teachers for a minute. John doesn't say that love is God, but only that God is love. So love is only possible as God defines it. Anything else is not love from God and might not be love at all. In fact, it might be the opposite. It might be hatred and damnation dressed up as love. If God is love, and He is, and all that He does is the expression of what His nature is, His nature of love, then what commands He has given to us for our flourishing is an expression of His love also. His commands to love our brothers as ourselves. His command to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, set the captives free. These are all from God's love. And so are, so are His commands to abstain from sin. Those too are an expression of God's love. And we don't determine what sin is. God does. So anyone who claims that what God calls sin is not sin but love, is not from God. They do not pass John's test. The proof of God's love for his people that is that he sent his only begotten son in order to provide eternal life for us. If we ever doubt God's love for us, we need to remember this verse. His death was to pay the penalty for our sins, not cancel sin itself, but cancel its debt. God's love for us was not a response to man's love for God. God took the initiative in reaching out to us. Jesus Christ became an atoning sacrifice. Or that really cool word, propitiation. That's what that means, an atoning sacrifice, at one one with God, the propitiation for our sins. That demonstration of love by God is our model for showing love to others. As God manifested love among us then by sending Jesus Christ, so he manifests his love among us now as we love one another. The reason that I say love is as defined by anything else is not love from God but, and might not love, be love in, in, in at all. In fact, it might even be the opposite. It might be hatred and damnation dressed up as love. The reason I say that is because the most unloving thing you could do is celebrate someone's sin. When love has been perverted from what God defines as love and so is not love at all, celebrating that is one of the most hateful acts a Christian could ever undertake towards someone. It's like throwing a party to celebrate their damnation. What a hateful thing to do. But we are to love. Since no one in all humanity is beyond the reach of our Saviour's sacrificial death, no brother or sister should, beyond, should be beyond our sacrificial love. Whenever we love one another, we make it possible for God to abide in close fellowship with us. And furthermore, God's love reaches a fullness and depth in us that is possible only when we love one another. That's when it attains its full strength is when, as loved people experience the love of God, we love one another. That is when love attains its full strength in us. The love of God does not reach perfection until it finds objects of love beyond itself. 
Our God is a God bigger than just us. And when it does, God, whom no one has, has seen, will be apparent in that demonstration of love. That's when people can see God. It's when we bring love. What a hope-filled concept that, that is. God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in us. And that's what John speaks about next. Verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we know, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love perfect, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also, as he is, so also are we in this world. This whole abiding thing, we've, we've got back there, haven't we? God abides in us, we abide in God, everything's all good, Yeah? It's pretty much the concept, right? Isn't it? Walking in the light. And it becomes evident, though, by the demonstration of love that comes from His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of our love as we abide in Christ, as we abide in God, just as He is the source of our obedience. So God's presence is observable in the lives of Christians who love each other. God produces that love. And most of John's original readers had not seen Jesus, just like all of us have not seen Jesus Christ in the flesh, as the apostles did. However, we can see and bear witness with the apostles that God sent Jesus Christ into the world to be the Saviour. We can share the apostles' experience, which John said was his goal in writing this epistle. So you might ask, how can we see God? Well, we can see God both in the manifestation of his love and in God's life behind that love, as we observe Christians loving one another. Verse 15, John addresses the issue of how to know if someone is abiding in God. You know, Jesus also spoke about abiding in God. Listen to these words from John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And in John 15, 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so here in 1 John 3.15, John says that the abiding Christian confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So bearing witness or, or testifying that Jesus is God's Son is one of those evidences that we are abiding in God. Because no one would ever do that if they weren't abiding in God. John's point was that we can personally see God in a sense similar to how the apostles had seen Him. The apostles had seen God in that they had seen Him in His Son, Jesus Christ. God had revealed His love to the apostles through Jesus Christ. We have seen God 
in that we have seen him in his spirit indwelt believers who abide and love one another. So we can also bear witness to the truth as the apostles did and we can say with the same intimate fellowship with God that the apostles did. Because that's when our love comes complete. It's perfected in the sense that we can now have confidence as we anticipate our day of judgment. As we abide in Christ, there is no need to fear the day of judgment because of love. Verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. When we love others, we have no reason to fear as we anticipate the judgment seat of Christ. The person who loves is, of course, the person over whom God is exercising his controlling influence. That person is an abiding Christian. If we're not abiding in Christ, then there is cause to fear and even dread Christ's judgment. That fear is, I guess, punishment, if you like, for our guilt. Christ's death for us, though, frees us from the fear of condemnation at the great white throne judgment. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our abiding life frees us from the fear of shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, even as loving Christians, we might still have other fears. Some people are fear of spiders, snakes, the dark. Who's afraid of being lonely? But we need not fear the judgment seat of Christ. The fact that we love others demonstrates that our relationship with God is essentially what it should be. But you see, our ability to love and our practice of love both come from God's love for us. It's because he first loved us that we can love others. It's like we have this this love tank within us. God fills that up so that we can pour it out on others. Someone said that humans were made to run on love, just like cars with internal combustion engines were made to run on petrol or diesel. They do not function well on anything else but love. And confidence is one of the great positive consequences of having intimate fellowship with God. We can have confidence both now and confidence when we meet Jesus Christ, when he returns for us or when we die. We can have confidence in prayer, as we saw last week, and confidence when we stand before his judgment seat to give an account of our stewardship, as we've seen in the verses today. So what is it that passes the test? It's love that passes the test. Our love for God made possible because he loved us first. That love is perfected. That love casts out fear as we approach God. Love is what passes the test. Love for one another, love for God, 
Love is what passes the test. And I know it seems like today we've probably gone over a few of these similar concepts that we've done previous weeks. But it reminds me of a new preacher who once had been pastoring a church. His first sermon was all about love, and particularly loving one another. It was well received by the congregation on his first Sunday, a really good encouragement. The church had had that first taste of his teaching gift and was looking forward to the next sermon the following week. That next Sunday rolled around, the preacher got up and preached the same sermon word for word. The congregation was a little bit uneasy, wondering if they had in fact heard the same sermon from the first week or had they just nodded off and it was same, same but different. The next Sunday left them in no doubt at all as the preacher preached the same sermon word for word again. On the fourth week he did it again and by now this was causing a bit of a stir. By the fifth week of the same sermon, a few of the congregation got together to discuss what on earth this preacher thought he was doing and they agreed that if he tried the, first, the same sermon again on the sixth time, one of them would get up and say something. So as he began preaching the same sermon yet again, the sixth Sunday in a row, one of the elder statesmen of the church interrupted the preacher asking for an explanation as to why he decided to preach the same sermon six weeks in a row. The preacher's response was swift and to the point. When you get it, I'll move on to the next sermon. (laughs) I kind of feel like that's what John does a bit here in 1 John. Do you feel the same? We're sort of going over the same stuff. Have we got it? He revisits and he restates. He circles back and around and on his point. Love again and love over and over again about love. So here's a question. Do you get it? Do you get the message that John wants you to hear? Do you get love? Do you get the concept of abiding in Christ, of walking in the light, of pleasing God, of loving God, of loving others because you've been loved by God? If you do get it, then what difference is it making in your life? Because when we get something, when God speaks to us, it requires action. If we have not changed from what we've heard from God's Word, then all it has been is a mental exercise and that is futile. Great that you're thinking better. Great that you're thinking right. But where it really matters is where it hit the road. Is it bringing change? Maybe this be a time where we might slow down from the rapidity of life to sit at the feet of Jesus, drenched in his love and light, and live in deep, abiding fellowship with God, expressing the depth of that fellowship by loving others in deed and truth. May it be God's love for us and our love for God and love for others that passes the test for us. May it make a difference in the way you act this week because you have heard the message and you get it. Or you might get the same sermon next week, that's right. (laughs) Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this message again on the love of God for us. That Lord, as we express love for one another, that is evidence that we are where we should be, that, that we are indeed abiding in you. Lord, you have given us the best 
most amazing gift of love. Lord, you are the one that defines love. Let no one else define it but you for us, Lord Jesus. Your sacrifice for us on that cross paid the ultimate price, paying the penalty for our sins. Lord, we don't know how much that cost. But exorbitant doesn't even cover it. That's your love for us. And so, Lord, we, we are not only thankful for your love, but, Lord, we get it. We get your command. We get your encouragement. We get your emphasis that we are loved so that we can love others. May there be some amazing things that you will lead us into in the weeks and months ahead that help us express your love to others. May there be opportunities that we have never dreamt of to love those around us, to share your love with them and bring them hope like there is no other in the love of Jesus Christ. May you go before us, prepare these moments, prepare our hearts to respond so that it's not just lovely thoughts today, but Lord, it's action because we get it. In your name I pray, amen.